The world you are now in is that of eternal twilight. It is said that in the perennial war between the forces of darkness and light, there is a third that remains neutral in this tiresome crusade, the adherents of which are apathetic to the goings-on outside of their secret world. It is somewhere between the waiting line at the pearly gates and the second circle of hell, retaining elements of both as a small-statured, ambiguous enigma. Neither angel nor devil, it is a thing that haunts the land, and its only stake lies in the wilderness of the earth, from which man has worked so hard to separate himself. It is an interdimensional jester who plays by its own set of rules, forcing those who happen across its path to question the most basic truth they take for granted, and robbing them of their sense of security. It dogs their step, smirking at them like it knows something they don't, leaving them with the uneasy feeling that the world they perceive is but a thin veneer, behind which the designs of one's wildest dreams and nightmares are playing themselves out, and that at any moment, the whole stage set might just fall. Welcome to The Hidden Passage. fairies that were considered good could be easily offended should humans show disrespect. This could be done unintentionally simply by wandering into the wrong territory. In the novel Peter Pan, J.M. Barry states that because of their small size, fairies are only able to hold one emotion within them at a time, unable to balance anger with compassion. While obviously a fictional tale, this seems to be an accurate description of their temperament as described in folklore. It is for this reason that the average person usually avoided them at all costs, quietly referring to them with flattering names such as the fair folk or the good people in order to denote equality and even deference. Only the druid priest dared enter these places of power for rituals and initiation rites. While transgressions could draw the ire of the fairies, goodwill towards them could be rewarded with gifts such as a fruitful harvest or completion of household chores. It was common practice among ancient peoples to leave food to appease them. The legend of Nock Grafton tells of a man with a humpback who hears the sounds of fairies playing music and being a musician himself decides to join in. 
The fairies were so pleased with his addition to the melody that they took away his hump. As word spread of this miraculous healing, a family with a son who also had a humpback went to the fairies and demanded that he be cured. The fairies instead gave him two humps, which weighed him down so heavily that he eventually died. This shows how their actions towards humans were often based on a moral judgment of our behavior. In terms of ethics, it appears that the fairies had a somewhat similar understanding of right and wrong as humans. Acts that we would consider noble were likewise regarded highly by them, while selfishness and ignorance were looked upon with disdain. However, they often did not hold themselves to the same standards and would steal from humans. They were also considered hedonistic, having a penchant for debauchery, which was especially offensive to the religious Christian ethos of the time. In this sense, they were associated with temptation, often using these things to seduce and lure humans into their world. Because of the variety of danger these beings pose, it was common practice to use forms of lesser magic, such as protective charms, in an attempt to ward against evil fairies. People would carry items which repelled them, such as salt, iron, sacred herbs, Bibles, and holy water, and would perform certain rituals, such as turning their clothes inside out, in order to confuse them. These things would be used around the home, and especially while traveling through the woods. humans and fairies was not limited to diplomacy and strife. Sometimes a deeper connection was made. The idea of matrimony is a fairly common myth, as fairies would sometimes take human mates and vice versa, leaving one's world to live with the other and have children. The fairy queens were extremely beguiling to man. Several prominent Celtic families claimed to have descended from these extraordinary unions. This type of myth may also be based on an older pagan custom wherein the king was expected to marry the local goddess of the land. A famous example of such a story tells of a Scottish MacLeod clan chief who stumbled across a fairy dwelling where he fell in love with a princess. The fairy king agreed to allow the couple to marry, but recognizing the short mortal lives of man required that she return to the fairy kingdom after a year and one day so that his daughter would not suffer the heartbreak of her husband dying. They bore a child during this time, and one night after the mother had left, the child began to cry. The fairy mother returned to sing to the child, wrapping him in a shawl, which later became the fairy flag, a powerful talisman for the clan. This flag could be waved three times in battle, summoning legions of fairy to aid the MacLeods in battle.
said that the flag was instrumental in securing two major victories against invading armies, which vastly outnumbered the clan. between humans and fairies was well documented, most of the time they remained insular, having their own cultures separate from humankind. While distinct, there are also similarities to our own. In terms of general behavior, they seem to in many ways mirror humans. A curious aspect to this is that since they don't require the things humans do in the physical world, their work activities were sometimes considered to be done as an act of mimicry. Those who witness fairies observe them to have similar rituals, customs, jobs, and leisure activities. They were known to be renowned, skilled craftsmen and musicians. They were often seen busily working, traveling, or simply frolicking about reveling in music-making and merriment, and were notoriously mischievous, finding amusement in the pranking of unsuspecting humans. In this sense, they embody a childlike, youthful nature, even though some appear very old. In my own research, I have spoken to many witnesses who claim to have seen fairies personally. A witness in a small village in Bodmin Moor in Cornwall, England, observed a group of three fairies while walking their dog. It was a particularly dark night, and as the witness was walking down the street, they began to hear a cacophony of sound, which they at first mistook for disturbed cats. As they went to discover the source of the sound, they observed a group of small humanoids, two to three feet tall, dressed in white robes similar to old nightgowns. The entities were laughing and screaming and proceeded to run past the witness, jumping and dancing around an old harvesting tool in the neighbor's yard. The witness's dog became agitated, so he turned around, continuing to hear the commotion as they made their way back up the street. Like humans, fairies were thought to form their own societies. In European folklore, their structure resembled that of humans of the time. They were often seen in large groups with hierarchies of kings and queens, such as was displayed during the Fairy Raid, a procession of the royal court on horseback. Some, however, preferred solitude and lived in isolated huts in the woods. The Irish leprechaun was one such solitary fairy. The appearance of the fairy ranged from beautiful, strange, to grotesque, often depicted with sharply exaggerated facial features and pointed ears. They could also range in size from that of a thimble to larger than a human being, but were most often on the smaller end of the scale. Some wore no clothing at all, or simply covered themselves with leaves and other natural items from their environment while some were adorned in simple, tattered clothing, such as a tunic with a conical hat. Royalty might have been seen dressed in fine medieval-style clothing. In terms of lifespan, some myths describe them as living extremely long, but could still die, while others describe them as immortal. 
Writer William Blake claimed to have witnessed the funeral procession himself, wherein the deceased was laid upon a leaf and buried in a garden. Throughout time, people have speculated as to the origins of these mysterious creatures. In pagan times, these beings were most likely identified as minor deities, genus loci, local gods who influenced certain communities. Some were thought to be directly based on Celtic gods, such as the goddess of winter, an aspect of the mother goddess, Kaliak, a hag-like deity who was seen as somewhat adversarial as she was responsible for stopping the coming of spring, however necessary, as there could be no summer without winter. This conversion of gods into fairies may have been a conscious or even unconscious attempt to preserve a vestige of pagan beliefs into the Christian era. The Druids, or priest class of Celtic cultures, held a firm belief in and venerated these beings. But as these ancient religions began to fade, the knowledge of the ancestors was lost, as many of their teachings were kept through oral tradition and only disseminated among the inner priesthood circles of those initiated into the mystery schools. And so people were left to fill in the gaps between the remnants of much older beliefs, reinterpreting them over time. Fairy folklore took on different colors with changing cultural movements throughout history. Due to the fairies' association with ancient burial mounds and megaliths, some believe that they were in fact the spirits of the dead, ancestors, or diminished forms of the old gods, who shrank in size and retreated to secluded places as people stopped believing in them during Christianization. As Christianity took hold, many old world folkways took on a more sinister tone, interpreted by church authorities as demonic in order to root out competition. Christian thinkers speculated fairies to be the souls of the unbaptized, or even demons. Quote, it is said that the good people are some of the fallen angels who were turned out of heaven, who landed on their feet in this world, while the rest of their companions, who had more sin to sink them, went down further to a worse place. The Priest's Supper, T. Croft and Croker. This perspective supposes that fairies exist in a limbo state, not good enough for heaven, but too good for hell, again, emphasizing an in-between nature. One Icelandic Christian story says that the first Holdafolk were the children of Eve, she was bathing them when God appeared and asked to see the children. Eve had not yet bathed all the children, so she decided to hide the unwashed ones from him. God, however, being omniscient, could see through this and decided that if they were to be hidden from him, that they would also be hidden from man. During the witch trials of the 1600s, a common charge was that the accused person had consorted with fairies and other evil spirits, keeping them as familiars who would do their bidding. The guilty show the corruption. Alleged witch Isabel Gowdy confessed to going to a hill where the fairy queen gave her, quote, more meat than she could eat. 
In Irish lore, the Tuatha Danann were a supernatural race of godlike giants who once ruled over the land, but were eventually defeated by the Malaysians or the Celtic Gael settlers. The premise of such Genesis stories were most likely an invention of medieval Christian writers and had little to no basis in the original traditions. perception of fairies took place during the German Renaissance through the writings of Swiss alchemist and philosopher Paracelsus. This period in history saw a revival of classical Greek culture and was influenced heavily by the ancient esoteric schools of thought such as hermeticism, describing metaphysical laws by which the universe operated. It was believed these forces could be understood and utilized in order to influence nature. The mantra, as above, so below, reflects the belief that everything in the material world had a divine correspondent. A variety of spiritual beings were created by God, each of whom were responsible for carrying out certain aspects of creation. It was from this philosophical framework that Paracelsus developed the idea of elementals, or nature spirits, drawing from the pre-existing mythical beings, particularly the Greek nymph, which was known as a caretaker of the forest, and which could be considered a cognate to the fairy. To him, all manner of fairies were semi-divine and part of this elemental system. He described four groups of entities, gnomes, sylphs, salamanders, and undines, belonging to the four alchemical elements, earth, wind, fire, and water. Because these four elements are the building blocks of creation, Paracelsus theorized that the elemental's purpose was assisting in the creation of all things in nature, inhabiting all aspects of it. This was his attempt to identify everything as having a function within the divine order of the universe, as everything is a product of God's will. While there is some earlier mention of fairies being spirits of the air, it is important to note that the idea of the fairy as being an elemental did not exist before Paracelsus. However, it's this notion that has become predominant in many New Age and Wiccan belief systems. And so the fairy began to be perceived as a more positive force. The perception of the fairy underwent another transformation in the Romantic era, which again embraced nostalgia for the past, pre-enlightenment era when thought was guided by emotion rather than the perceived coldness of logic. One could see how this reactive movement might produce bias, and so fairies were sentimentalized in the works of great fiction writers of the time. They took on a purely benevolent form representing wonder and magic. Their physical form became less alien and more human-like, with the addition of sparkling butterfly wings. Their destructive magic was left out in descriptions. This interpretation has largely informed our modern perception of fairies as being quaint and fictional characters. William Butler Yeats wrote, Come away, O human child, to the waters and the wild, 
with a fairy hand in hand, for the world is more full of weeping than you can understand. This illustrates a dramatic shift in thought. As was mentioned earlier, in ancient times, abduction by fairies was a very real threat that terrified people. Perhaps as the comforts of developing society, which sheltered us from the forces of nature, gave us security and took away our fear of it, also diminishing our fear of the spirits that inhabited it, allowing us to spectate from a safe distance. And finally, with the advancement of science, we no longer required the idea of spirits to explain the mechanisms of nature, as we began to view it as a self-organizing system through natural processes. Today, it is assumed by modern scholars that the fairy phenomenon can be explained through rational means. Elfshot was invented by people who didn't understand the real causes of disease and illness. The modern medical term stroke is actually derived from this phrase. Likewise, the idea of fairy abduction was a way to explain illness and deformity in an era when people had no understanding of genetics or microbiology. These were invisible forces until the invention of the microscope. If a baby was deformed or a person became ill, it was assumed that the healthy person had been replaced with a fairy. The fact that males are more likely to have birth defects could also explain why boys were more likely to be abducted. Furthermore, the idea of the changeling is thought to have been an attempt to explain neurological disorders. The odd behavior that typified changelings such as OCD and stilted speech correlate with the modern diagnosis of autism, and autistic people have often expressed feelings of alienation, even to the degree of not feeling human. It is interesting to note that the use of eggshells in a changeling ritual could have been a type of fertility rite, the egg being a symbol of such, suggesting that on a subconscious level, people understood that this was a reproductive issue. Hey guys, I just wanted to fill you in a little as to what's been going on and what the tentative plans are for the future. So for those of you who listened to the last episode when it first came out, uh, you might have noticed that this one dropped a lot later than expected. And that's because things have been pretty crazy for me lately. I just had to move to a new place and do some work on that. So I had to put the show on hold for a while, but I still intend to move forward with it and I should have more time to work on it now. I'm not going to set any specific dates for now just because I'm still trying to find my footing and get an idea of how long things are going to take. Um, I'm still learning about the whole process, so my workflow is going to change as I learn and get better at things, but um, hopefully soon I'll be able to get a consistent rhythm going. Nevertheless, I am shooting for releasing an episode every two to three weeks. It takes a while to do the scripted format with all the sound effects, but I am planning on doing some different formats to shake things up and make it easier to get stuff out more frequently. So there will be interviews where I can get them and possibly some unscripted material as well. So thank you for bearing with me on that. 
Um, in the next month, I am working on releasing part three of the fairy series. And I'm also going to be doing an episode on the history of Easter and sort of the pagan origins of that. I'm also working on an interview with a shaman. Um, so we'll be introducing the basics of that practice. Um, so I think that's going to be very interesting. So lastly, I just want to kindly ask you to rate and review the show um, and share it with whoever you can, because right now my goal is to just get those numbers up, you know, as I'm just starting out. So thank you for listening and I will see you soon.